the thing that makes you you and makes you not a machine is that you have the capacity for reason. I don't know why we would capitulate so quickly to be reducing ourselves into sameness. And yet, you look at Squarespace, they're fantastic, but they all look the same kind of great. If you're a designer who's willing to actually embrace that and go further, I think maybe design has, has a prayer of, of saving us yet. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design, and today I'll be speaking with Jessica Helfand. It's not an overstatement to say that Jessica is a Renaissance woman of the design world. She co-founded The Design Observer, an authoritative digital publication on the state of visual culture and an oracle of wise and thoughtful discourse on design for many of us. She also co-hosts two podcasts, The Observatory and The Design of Business, The Business of Design. In all aspects of her work and writing, she asks deep questions about creative practice and forces us to challenge our assumptions in several important ways. In addition to her own art and design practices, Jessica is also a prolific author of numerous books, including her latest work, Face, A Visual Odyssey, recently included on the new and noteworthy list of the New York Times. With encyclopedic thoroughness, Jessica examines the cultural significance of the face from archival mugshots through selfie culture and facial recognition technology. Her academic career has been no less impressive than her literary and creative accomplishments. She has taught design at Yale University, her alma mater, since 1996. She currently serves as the second ever artist-in-residence at Caltech, which is located a few blocks from Art Center in Pasadena. Later in the episode, we'll join her there in the classroom for a fascinating peek at how she's opening pathways of design to the quantitatively-minded students of science and engineering. A fascinating conversationalist, Jessica readily peppers our dialogue with cogent insights into social media's impact on the next generation of designers, penetrating questions on the ethics of design, and a very honest and moving sense of the ways in which personal experience invariably shapes creative practice. Please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Helfand. I actually want to start by inviting you to talk about the relationship of scholarship and practice, the life of the mind and the life in the studio and how that operates for you. It's a it's an intersection that I personally find very interesting in terms of reflecting on my own work, but it's also fundamental to, I think, the kind of education we offer at Art Center and seems so significant to who you are and the work that you do that I wanted to explore that with you. Well, I had an unorthodox training because I didn't come out of an art school like Art Center, right? I was at Yale as an undergraduate, uh, back as a graduate student. Uh, I didn't write at Yale, but at some point in my life as a young designer, I had a lot of questions that I felt couldn't be answered in the studio. And I, I always imagined myself on one of those swiveling chairs between two desks where one was the word desk and one was the image desk. And it, it's therefore maybe not surprising that I really cut my teeth as a young designer, as an editorial designer, because it's so easy to tell stories that sort of inhabit that fluid spectrum between pictures and words. And so for me, the the scholarship that grew out of that really happened because I love language. And I think I write like a visual person and I make visual work like a word mm, person. So mm -hmm. I don't know that that's a good thing, but it, that's the hybrid method but is it madness. a nourishing relationship for you it can be I, although i was very discouraged as a student from thinking too much uh there was a sort of moment in the 80s uh and 90s when i was doing my degrees where that there was this notion that you couldn't the sort of thinking through making thing, which is I, I, I know it's of interest to you, it's of great interest to me, uh, wasn't so much top of mind, not to mix my metaphors. But I think it was there was this idea that if you thought too much, you would never produce anything. Uh, and I feared and I always felt that that uh, I look at people who come out of an art school trained education thinking that they had a more robust sense mm -hmm. of their capacity mm -hmm. in the studio and learning how to inhabit a studio practice took me some time. And it's something I've really only come to quite recently and, and come to it with, with a kind of a new appetite for making in a new way. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to something you said I wanted to pick up on, did you or, or do you currently face an anti-intellectual sensibility in your work, that design world that you might speak to particularly, or just the creative practical world resists some of the 
I, the, you know, it's a, the love of language. It's and an words excellent and... question. Uh, when when I started Design Observer in two thousand and three, we were initially criticized for speaking in complete sentences because in those days blogs were meant to have a kind of offhand, cursory immediacy. That uh, I remember somebody saying we had a lecture hall style of writing, and I, I held to that. And I think it it was borne out over time that we actually wrote incomplete sentences because we thought incomplete thoughts, or at least we tried to have an arc of a story, a trajectory, or a gestational point of view about an idea coming to fruition through sparking conversation, which is what those early days of the blog were. Um, but I, I do feel, I mean, personally, to answer the question, uh, there's a betwixt and betweenness about the way that I've been trained and the way that I work. Um, I'm, I've been painting for 10 years, uh, quite seriously. And now my practice is much more of an art practice than it was, uh, than a design practice. I shut my design practice down when my husband died. Running Design Observer has changed. But I think that, you know, also being at Yale for 20 years, I was an affiliate in history of science and medicine. I taught for two and a half years in the School of Management. Mm. I, um, I taught, uh, I was the first, I taught the first seminar to Yale freshmen, uh, in the School of Art, which was to say they weren't art students in a studio class. And the dean came to me and said, can you come up with an idea for a class that could be anything to anybody? And I came up with this idea of teaching a class on the color blue that was, let us go look at the first reference to the blues as a synonym for depression to the medical school library and let us look at Langston Hughes and let us look at Cole Porter and look at bringing a musician to teach the students how to find the note between the major and the minor scale, which is the blue note, right? So it was a way to actually embrace the idea of a primary color as a lens through which we could consider scholarship. Which, by the way, sounds very Jessica to me (laughs) in the sense that, and I love this, you seem to Look at the world through lenses, through almost crucibles, yeah. right? There's blue, there's the paintings that you just referenced, but they're paintings that are of this cellular tissue. Like they form a lens into bigger ideas and wider perceptions. There's the face, there's the scrapbook there. Each name of your chapter seems to say, here, let's take this piece, this crucible Right. They're like ideological lenses, but also sort of filters for thinking about. I mean, when, when, I, when I started out writing um, for iMagazine back in the 90s, I had a column called Screen. So what was Screen? It was obviously the computer screen. It was a theatrical device. It was uh, a filter. It, was, it could be big or small. It could be a mirror on society. It could be a lens through which we look at the world. And, and so I like the idea of playing with these sort of 360-degree views mm-hmm. of things. But mm-hmm. and then other times they're palimpsests. They're just layers mm. of things. They have to be excavated mm-hmm. the way an archaeologist would. So I, I, I get bored easily. I'm, I'm sort of serially monogamous as a scholar in that way. Well, I can say for the reader, you give us a kind of wonderful platform or a way into it or something to hold on to, to go into these open seas of exploration that you take us through, but it anchors it in a way, or it gives it a, a context that I found to be both helpful and poetic at the same time. Thank you. I, I mean, it was really it was a really hard book to write. You're talking about the, the most recent book. Uh, well, no, actually, I see it throughout your writing. Oh, you do? I, I see you using those lenses. I mean, for example, each chapter of the book on design, The Invention of Desire, has those, you, you set them up. They're all one-word chapter headings, right? And they take us in and through, certainly for the face as well. You, you know? know, this is another thing about scholarship, which is it's a chance to interrogate your assumptions, right? You think you're doing it for others, but you're really doing it for yourself. And so The Crucible, for me personally, that book I wrote uh, on sabbatical in Paris after after my husband died and really struggling with design, struggling with the degree to which design can confer so easily false authority on anything. Mm-hmm. And watching students use technology with with the speed and uh, sort of uh, the pantomime ability to make anything look believable and real. And it scared me. And it, I found it discomforting. And I thought I should write about it. And, and in parallel to that, I was going through a very difficult moment personally trying to figure out what my practice was. And the other piece of these images and, and both the, the portraits and, and these, uh, the tissue histologies very much influenced by my family, by my father, who was a historian of science. But it was really trying to, I think, make sense of a rational world that he inhabited when I really wanted to just be an abstract painter. And so the fact that they present as abstract form but are, in fact, remarkably representative of a very particular scientific moment mm. 
uh, that will never be seen again interested me. I want to transition to talking about design, uh, lots about design and your perspective on it, both your critique as well as your celebration of its power. And uh, your call in this book, particularly Invention of Desire, for, for design and, and elsewhere, for design to serve as a kind of framework for the deepest kinds of humanistic questions mm-hmm. and uh, be a kind of a, a framework for human experience. Mm-hmm. In a way, to be completely frank, it felt like you were asking of design or you are asking of design to be like the theater. Tell me how, tell me, say more about that. Because if the theater is the context for the exploration of the deepest kinds of questions of human experience, which I believe it to be, Uh then your perception of design and its power to do the same is an interesting translation of that. I love that. I mean, it's very generous of you to include me in that. The way you framed that, I think, is is beautiful. And I agree. I I, I would actually maybe uh, enlarge it to be visual culture, right? So that the design, I think. You know, there was a moment when I was training as a designer where graphic designers felt to architects the way dental hygienists felt to, you know, brain surgeons, that, that we were sort of really not seen as you didn't have to be certified to practice. Right. Now, if you add that, you know, occasional perspective to the fact that we live in a, a world where anybody with an Instagram feed is thought to be visually literate, it's ha- it's hard for design to carve out its voice as being that. Um, I think socially benevolent. And so what do we do? We create more splinter groups like social design and experience design. And these are operational conceits, not uh, emotional or psychological ones. And I, I think what I tried to do in that book was go was go further, mostly concerned that we were aestheticizing everything and not really asking bigger questions. Mm. But why is design for you, or if you can talk to listeners about that, why designs for you becomes a context for these larger issues and these larger questions. The shift you're asking us to make from the production, material, commerce. Because I think anyone who's a maker has to think about consequence in a new way. I mean, I think if there's one thing that I wanted to come out of that book, it was the idea that it's so easy to be happy with yourself because you got so many thumbs up likes on a thing you posted. It's so easy to feel the immediate draw of that kind of reassurance socially. I mean, it, 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 there's, it's a fascinating sociological problem that we feel, and we do, that social media has led us to all feel so disenfranchised culturally. And so what do we do? We, we dig our heels in deeper and we post more. That kind of um, cyclical, it's its like, um, a, you know, it's a circuitry that starts to get built into a set of social expectations. And what happens if you combine that to visual people who are visual is that the emphasis is on the surface. It's on novelty. It's on narcissism. It's on looking good. It's on the thing you make looking good. It's on the thing you make looking good and winning awards. And bringing you fame and fortune and getting more likes on Instagram. So that cycle is a vicious cycle if you start to think about the things that really matter, like the planet, like what is truly sustainable, what is emotionally sustainable, what is, you know, beyond being graphically sustainable. Those lessons need to be brought back to design in a, with a completely different purview. So circling back to what I was trying to ask about before, and that's sort of the power of design and how it provides a framework, I think, for some some of these deeper, more complex questions of human experience that I believe you're calling for. Mm. That's what I learned from you anyway. Um, <laughs> and there are two that I think about, and maybe you can choose one. One is what you were alluding to before regarding how making can lead to a kind of knowing and uh, something that interests me personally a lot and that I've done my own work on. But this wonderful quote from your book is, to be human is to struggle with the unknowable, to design is to make things knowable. And that kind of relationship is something that interests me a lot and I think opens up, again, the context for these complicated questions. The other one has to do with, and this comes out in your later book on the face too, this admonition to examine the self and to talk about vigilance, which is a word that you land on that I think is so beautiful. And I never knew the etymology of that. Of? Of the word vigilance, which is to wake up, I learned from Jessica. <laughs> which is it's and, time to and, wake up. Right. And a waking up of the self and a, an observation of the self is, again, the admonition that I hear. So design is providing you the context to wrestle with these complicated questions. I think I'm, they're complicated questions because they have to do with individual, an individual sense of what is right. And 
if social media has enabled us to participate in different platforms of communication, it's also narrowed the spectrum of difference, right? So Facebook looks alike, email looks alike, fonts look, I mean, the, the streamlined nature of Slack, of email, of Instagram, of Pinterest, everything, there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And so if we think about design as a differentiator or the designer as capable of asking questions that by their very nature, I think, channel for me maybe the tension between what is variable and what is constant or the tension between what is universal and what is unique. The nature of streamlined technological life almost obliges us to think in the other direction. So that that's an interesting tension. So a young person or any designer really has to come to terms with what they feel is right and important. I mean, they have a client, they have a budget, they have a timetable. There's all sorts of things that conspire against you anyway. But I think that the thing that I fear the most is the sameness that we get in line. Um, there's a thing in my book um, on the face. I found a young artist who did a whole series of of passport do's and don'ts, right? That the nature of being a traveler means that you're opening yourself up to new worlds, and yet the very nature of being able to be processed at border control means you have to participate in a vernacular of sameness. You can't smile. You have to be. You can't have a headdress. You can't have glasses on. It's all these things that strip you of the very identity that should make us who we are. And so, again, I think these questions need to be thought of. You don't. Somebody said to me recently, you don't. If you're an architect, you don't put the door on the ceiling, but you might think about how the door relates to program and passage and fluidity in a building. And so I think we need to deconstruct these bigger questions to think about the self in relation to its service, our service as communicators, as ambassadors of communication Beautiful. in the world. Yeah. I think it's a great point and a really sensitive point. When it comes to social media, and, and from what I, uh, again, get from your critique of social media, at least I believe what you're saying is that that tyranny of sameness is taken to said. this extreme, correct? Right. Right? right. I mean, where it's an affront to who we are as complex human beings, as multiplicity, as contradictions. It, it just, it narrows the field so much for us. That and, and that's really a problem. I've had, I have been interviewed twice in the last six months about why do things look the same? Why does everything look the same? And and you're right. It it minimizes the the pulse. The, when I talk about the, the the thing that makes you you and makes you not a machine, is that you have the capacity for reason. That you have your experience. You grew up where you did. You have the parents you did. The family you do. Some of it's nature. Some of it's nurture. Uh, I don't know why we would capitulate so quickly to be reducing ourselves into sameness. And yet, you look at websites at at things like all of these wonderful platforms, Squarespace, they're fantastic. These things look great, but they all look the same kind of great. And so it's, a, it's an exciting moment in some ways. If you're a designer who's willing to actually embrace that and go further, I think maybe design has, has a prayer of, of saving us yet, but, but not because we are evangelical about what we've already done. I wonder if there's a relationship with how we use convention and maybe when convention gets too extreme or magnified too much and we, we, we don't break out of it sufficiently. In other words, we, we want to use convention, but we also want to challenge Right. So you probably, right? as you're saying that, I wonder if you have a theatrical image in mind. like Completely. Yeah. Like a staging yeah. of Sweeney Todd that had the six actors instead of the full chorus. Like the fact that you tell a story backwards instead of forwards. Like the fact that you cast something differently. I think that convention change for convention change's sake is probably not what you're suggesting. But the idea that you examine the op at an operational, at almost at a, at a granular level, really, what what things can can be and how they could be different, how they could be better, and know that the consequence is something you have to take it take into consideration always. Right. I'm also talking about how we work with form too. You know, I was delighted to see because I don't see this very much that you cited Shklovsky and and formalism, right? Which is a huge why don't huge designers talk about issue him? to me? Yeah, he, he, that is such an important design conceit yeah, to talk to about. To be him. able to defamiliarize, to, defamiliarize. Things, to get us to see again and anew, right. seems to me so critical. And that kind of that's another lens, right? Like you're shifting the perspective or opening up the spectrum of possibility by taking the thing that is familiar. The other, the other person who I think thought did that so well was the the David Borston book, The Image, when he talked about tautology. So the idea that we're we and we know we live in a culture of saturated images. So why wouldn't we try to come up with a different perspective instead of making something bigger or bolder or redder or greener? But it interests me too that you can use convention to do that, right? In, right. Or you need actually convention to do that, right? 
So one of the things I'm struggling with a lot in, in my new work as a painter relates to this, I think, which is the, the question of consent and ethics around the appropriation of material. So if you're a designer and you're redesigning something, presumably the client has said, here's my bottle. It's not selling well. Make me a better bottle. You're not appropriating that except in the spirit of recapturing it, recapturing the market and making your client happy. But for artists, there are many divides between art and design, and this is certainly one. I mean, there's a long tradition of collage artists and directors, probably in theater, who work with existing material and want to make it new. So how do we draw the line around what is appropriation and what is stealing and what is sort of too polarizing in that way, right? So I'm, I'm working on this body of, of paintings based on an orphan collection of between 10 and 15,000 negatives, photographs of people that have never been seen. Now, how is that any different than me going to a flea market and buying a vernacular photograph and making a painting of the face? Maybe it's not, or maybe it is. It's really hard because, mm. because I don't know. There's a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of I don't know. And yet, I mean, I, I'll spend six hours looking at a photograph and I'll be in tears by the end because these people are no longer here to tell their story, but I am. Who am I to tell their story? Am I appropriating their story? Is that bad? Or am I lifting and elevating and excavating and restoring dignity to someone who's not here to tell their own story? That's what keeps me up at night. I do want to circle back to a comment that you made earlier and that you make in your writing in lots of different ways about the way in which um, design can offer a false legitimacy to things. I, w I actually want to invite you to talk about that a little bit more. Thank you, I Lauren. So I, I feel like I might be excommunicated by my profession. I often call myself a recovering designer for just this reason. Um, it, it bothers me that we make things look more expensive because we can. Uh, I can make anything look more expensive. I'm a really good mimic. I, I, I have several skills, um, very few of them. One of them is I'm really good at parallel parking. Uh, another is I'm really good at making things look expensive because I think designers by their very nature are good at doing no that. No wonder you're such a successful person. Yeah. <laughs> those, right those two yeah, qualities yeah, exactly. will get me very far. Um, I remember Paul Rand once saying um, back in the 80s, he was my, he was my thesis advisor at Yale and uh, was back in the day when when credit card companies were first introducing uh, tiered memberships. So he was called upon by American Express to come up with a, an elite status before the platinum card. It was their version of platinum. And he made it the same color as the Tiffany's box. And someone said, but Professor Rand, why did you make it the same color as the Tiffany's box? He said, what do you think about when you think about Tiffany's? And they said, extreme wealth. He said, well, what would you do? Mm. Right? So... I mean, that's a kind of a beautiful lyrical example of how we can convey an expectation through something, through optics, but there's something more nefarious at play, right? So I, I just worry that we're not talking about that, that designers don't talk about the fact that your client wants something and you could talk them out of it, but you're talking yourself out of a paycheck. Or you want to emulate something because you know it is going to lift your client's um, uh, product above the others. Yes, that's differentiation. But I just think there's a, there's, if we're not teaching ethics and we're not talking about consequence, there's an implicit breakdown in the morality of practice, right? So, and we can call ourselves social designers because we're doing things that are social, socially relevant. And we are, people are doing amazing things every day, but, and it doesn't mean that packaging doesn't need, still need to be beautiful. It doesn't mean that I don't still don't go buy a bottle of wine and I pick the wine bottle has the best typography. But I think that we don't talk about it enough. And, and, and I, it really gets back to the sort of question of bravery, interrogating your assumptions, understanding the larger purview of the work you're putting out in the world, which is consequence, which is thinking about, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, the air we breathe, what your children will do, what, what, you know, what, what is sustainable over a long haul. And I don't think design by its nature privileges that kind of thinking. 
right? We like the idea. I mentioned this in the introduction to Invention of Desire. We are futurists. We think about the future and how we can make it better. And that often demands we do it with a, with a speed and an immediacy that mitigates against what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I feel a little lost saying that. I mean, I'm, I feel so privileged to be here talking to you about about my work, but but I I have I have real questions about design's role in a world that's so commercially driven around things that are not really so good for any of us. So this class is called Studies in Visual Biography, and. Uh, I taught it for many years at Yale to Yale freshmen, and the background is that the the dean at the time was interested in a class that could be anything to anybody. <laughs> Talk about a directive from your dean. So when I came out to Caltech to do the artist residency, they asked me to teach one class, and. I, mean, I began with this idea that all observation is observation. So if you're a science student looking through a microscope or you're an artist looking at a canvas, it's the same process. And so this week we're talking about the biographies of things. So I'm going to give you a little exercise. There is a magazine that comes out of England called MacGuffin. So each of these issues is about a specific thing looking through a kaleidoscopic lens. So you're going to do windows, you're going to do rope, and you're going to do the sink. There's one extra one if somebody for some reason feels that they cannot relate. What I'm learning, because you always learn as a teacher, I'm learning that there are different ways to be creative. There's a verbal way, there's, there's a visual way, we know that, but that there's a scientific way. Just watching them, observing them the way a parent watches a child. We're going to take about five minutes and you're going to each look at your journal, and then I'd like to go around the table and one by one, in your own words, I'd like you to summarize for the rest of us what you think is going on. So this week they were asked to just come up with a backstory for an object. In a way, that's no different than asking them to look at something in the archives, because they're learning what the points of entry are that aren't obvious. So mine is about sinks. Um, I would actually say that the sink is a looking glass to the pipeline. And we, we, we somehow have this inkling that the sink's somewhat filthy. Like, they're supposed to be cleaned very often, because the, the reason why they're filthy is because they're connected to a whole different like a whole underworld of filth and waste and stuff. And, and that is the only outlet of it. That is the portal that connects the hidden infrastructural world to your civilized household. And the whole idea is to tell, learn how to tell stories about people that aren't you, which obliges them to enter into a process of inquiry that is much more humble than taking a selfie or posting a picture or worrying about your Facebook feed or your social media profile. I was at Caltech today. I'm, I'm making these, these proof prints and they're really large. And uh, they have a wide format printer, which I desperately need. And they said, but we can only print on coded paper. And I said, that's just not okay with me. And the manager of the print shop went and got some archival paper. And it was this beautiful moment where I was really grateful to have people to collaborate with. I still I still want to make bigger prints than they can make. That'll be another conversation. But how much paper do I need? How much do I need to prove this with? My paintings begin on an iPad. I feel like that's cheating. I pay, I've always painted on top of photographs. Am I cheating if I'm painting on top of an iPad? Are they really paintings? Well, then I print them out, and then I bring them back into Photoshop, and then I print them out on canvas, and then I paint on top of them. And I'm starting with 19th century glass plate negatives. So I love the operational investigation, the formal material investigation of working with a collection that no one's seen, working on, I can paint on an airplane because I'm on an iPad, and then I need to find a printer I can collaborate with. Mm. And I want these things to be big because I also have learned from my friend Paula Scher that the minute you take your work out of the scale of what we work in computationally, you change the emotional encounter with the work. And so 
taking someone's face, getting it out of the iPhone, getting to the iPad and making it 36 by 48 or six by eight feet suddenly means that you're having a different encounter with the work. And so- And defamiliarizes that face. And defamiliarizes that face, to, right. to quote our friend Shlovsky. Right, exactly. right, right. Did you know what you wanted to say in these books before you wrote it? I knew that I wanted to write a book about design as a humanist discipline, and I knew I had to get it down to five or six chapters and 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 noodle on what those things meant. I knew I wanted to write about consequence. I knew I wanted to write about how design shouldn't just be about making things pretty. With a Facebook, I mean, what doesn't have a face, right? I mean, I, I, when I came up with the A to Z conceit, my editor said, that's really corny, no. And I said, I will never write this book if I don't find a structure. And she said, then, okay. And then when I got to M, I wanted to stick a fork in my eye because it's a lot of <laughs> yeah, chapters. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I kept on keeping on. I, I, I once had a, um, a directing teacher who said, the mark of the great director is the one who can get rid of all the big ideas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you can get yourself in trouble. You can get, and that's yeah. everybody who's ever written a thesis has, has said the same thing. I'm yeah, going to, you know. I'm going to do Guernica I mean, too. The reason I ask is because for me, writing is absolutely that make-to-know process. In other words, I have an idea, a notion, a, a sense, but it's not until I'm engaged in the writing when I right. really know what I I have to say. Right. Um, you have to really get in bed with it. You really have to just like roll around in it and let it just occupy you. Yeah, and talk about going into uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, so much of my life and in every dimension is going into places of uncertainty. And People misunderstand that as, you know, you make it up as you go along. That's not it at all. We have, we have education, we have experience, we have questions, we have ethics, we have, but that's the scaffolding we stand on as we reach into this place of uncertainty. Right. You know, it's not, it, and, and that, that becomes increasingly important all the time. But for a, design, for a designer to realize that their scaffolding is their practice? Right. Or that a part of that, an important part of the scaffolding for me, when I when I started, when I got back into the studio and started to work on this project post face, that was very much about face. I realized, I thought, you know, people talk about yoga being their daily practice or worship, which you can't take those things away from people or meditation. But to find a place in your work that is central to who you are is kind of a big I think that's a big thing. And if you can do that then you're going to be at least feel that a part of your day is worthwhile. I get it, though I'm I'm distracted by all the metaphors about face, about about face, which is a, a funny. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to call <laughs> it Facebook. Face and, I wanted to call yeah, it Facebook. They yeah, would yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that book, and uh, maybe if just for the listeners, you can take a step back and just talk say what a little it is. bit. Say what it is. And so. Um, I grew up with a father who collected uh, things having to do with the history of pharmacy and medicine, and in particular, a big collection of phrenology heads and posters. Um, uh, the posters themselves were big and theatrical and French and Italian. And uh, I said to somebody once, I was either going to go into theater or become a graphic designer. And they said, or vaudeville. This is sort of in a way, you know, this is, this is the vaudeville. So the book has a kind of vaudeville quality. Um, I discovered something in the early 20th century that uh, sort of uh, predated eugenics, which was uh, people looking at face reading as a way to understand character. And these were not primarily phrenology heads, which are really busts and pieces of three-dimensional sculpture, but drawings that had to do with, you know, up over the left eyebrow, you know, that says you'll be a good father and pugilism is the earlobe and, I mean, the crazy things. And there were textbooks and there were curricula and there was, there was so much. And I... I bought a book called Vaught's Practical Character Reader, which came out, I think, 1905 or 1909. And I bought a copy of it on eBay that was unbound, beat up for $5. And I, I framed every page and put it on the wall. And for a year, I stared at this thing. And that was the beginning of this book, which was to say that uh, I, I love faces. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by portraiture. I hate selfies. I have, or I should say I have a great antipathy about selfie culture, which is uh, myopic and doesn't really get us where we need to go. And yet the one thing you have, even if you're an identical twin, is your own face. The one thing that, that makes you who you are. The, the cover image is actually a picture of a baby, but it's really only half a baby, and it's flipped. Mm. And what interested me about this, this artist, his name is John Seven, he's an artist in London, was he, he makes these very strange, uh, upsetting collages. So it's a, it's a disturbing image because it's too symmetrical. And yet if you look across cultures, from African culture to Asian culture to Western culture to really every culture, the, the one thing that underscores beauty expectations is symmetry. And yet if it's too symmetrical, it's discomforting. So the book is 26 A through Z chapters from anthropometry to 
the current zeitgeist, looking at things like eugenics and the gaze and heredity and identity. It looks at surveillance. It looks like it looks at um, machine learning, not so much in terms of wrong and and um, biased algorithms, although it does look at that, but in terms of things like uh, robots. Like who decides what faces robots should have? Where where is the sort of where's beauty? Where's identity? Where's uh, narcissism? Uh, why do we have such an urge to measure? The urge to measure goes back to the Renaissance, of course. You know, goes back to, and the urge for symmetry goes back to the Brunelleschi dome, and and the idea that we we sort of feel complete when we see something symmetrical. And yet, as individuals, we're 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 imbalanced and we're imperfect. So there's really it's sort of a psychological, sociological study of why we make the judgments we make about the people we do because we all have a face. And. I will say it's a fabulous book. Thank you. I loved reading it. I, I mean, I loved reading all your stuff, but it's a particularly meaningful book to me, which I'll get to in a minute. But it harkens back to what we were talking about, too, about convention and form and assumption and investment of kind of cultural notions and ideas and ways in which, uh, you know, our attention is directed in a way. Right. You know, which is why selfies are so cyclical and weird because they don't really move us forward from the kind of inquiry I was hoping to achieve here. Right. And the selfie, like we were talking about earlier, is also a confinement. It's a singularity. It's, it points to a way of thinking about uh, representation that is a complete denial of the contradictions and the multiplicity of who we are. Exactly. And it's it's falsely reassuring. So the, it's like the equivalent of, of you driving the car off the showroom floor and it will never have the value it has like because it won't have that mileage mm -hmm. again, right? Mm -hmm. So the minute the picture is taken, in a way the histology paintings were the same thing, you'll never see that spleen tissue in that thing again, right? So the minute you take an image, it's not going to be that again. And so our need for constant reassurance probably explains why there's so many selfies online, but they don't actually, in terms of image culture, in terms of portraiture, in terms of selfhood, they don't advance the conversation at all. So there are two particular parts of the book that I wanted to zero in on. One has to do with the mask, which may not surprise you, and the other one has to do with the physiognomy. And with respect to the mask, I'm interested in what happens when one dons a mask and the face is obscured or changed and how that redirects energy in a certain kind of way. I was really interested that you cited Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut and right. the kind of eroticism of the naked body that is masked in the face and the kind of energy it brings to that. And the irony, like, you know, everything else is on view and yet you are protected. Your identity is protected because the eyes aren't there. And there's so much in the eyes. I mean, the eyes are everything. Um, there's a guy at Caltech called Ralph Adolphs who um, who studies facial expressions in the brain and who's really interested, as we all should be, in context, right? Everything is context. So the context of the Kubrick story, which is, you know, this Bacchanalian display of, of nakedness, and yet you keep on your mask and nobody knows who you are. I was interested in writing that chapter, and you, you as a theater person and historian, know this already, that, that you know, the changing masks at one point allowed you to be whoever you wanted to be, so you didn't have to change costume. And also this great Victor Hugo story of the Joker, of uh, permanent makeup, creating a mask that did not allow you to deviate from that character. But there are many kinds of masks, I suppose, that actually conceal identity or partially conceal identity. Um, the reconstruction that went on on faces after World War One, I, I was really fascinated to find this wonderful woman who I write about in the book. She would create these masks. She she couldn't change people's physicality. These were men who had been really brutally maimed in World War One, but she would use their spectacles to hinge parts of the face. And so you would see somebody who had a pair of glasses, and then hanging from it was was the reconstructed mm. piece of cheek. Mm. Um, it's just uh, you know, ma masks are some of the most interesting things in the world to me, and what it does. I mean, I think I kind of loved your example of eyes wide shut because the relationship of the mask and the covering of the face to the eroticism of the body, and how it enhanced that eroticism, 
was interesting to me. And it reminded me of, I don't know if you came across in your time in Paris, the Jacques Lecoq School of Clowning. He no. teaches clown there. And he does this exercise in his training of actors, of clowns, to put on what he called a neutral mask. And we can put aside all of the complexities of calling anything neutral at that right. point. Right. But the idea of the neutral mask is that he would obscure the face and he wouldn't allow you to speak. And what that then released was a kind of energy and expression of the body. Oh, fascinating. So it allowed you to take the energy that you hold conventionally in the face and it deviates to the body itself. So that comes back to your thing about conventions, I think, because uh, when I was a, a graduate student at Yale, I studied with Michael Romer, the filmmaker, and his classic first assignment uh, was to send you out to shoot film with no sound because sound lies, right? Music lies. You can immediately convey a mood. But if, if it's just the image that is moving, you have to pay attention to the image. Right, right. Similarly, my, my students all came in with photographs last week that were in color. I said, right, bring back the photograph in black and white. Completely different conversation. The form has to work because you're not relying on the color. Mm -hmm. That is exactly, I think, the argument you're making. And it's a beautiful argument because, because if you actually enumerate and remove certain of these conditions, you can allow something else to happen. Right, right. So another way to look at this, um, and this comes from a very personal experience, close to 20 years ago, I woke up with a paralyzed face. I had Bell's palsy. And it lasted, I, was, I didn't have a twitch on the left side of my face for uh, oh, a good six months. And then it took another over a year for it to come back the way it has. And there are plenty of weaknesses. And I have something called synchinesis, which means as the nerves grew back, the nerves that were supposed to attach to the platysma attached to the eye and the one for the eye attached to the mouth. And so uh, I have a synchronesis. So when I smile, my eyes close. And the experience of that, of lost face and how it related to other experiences of my life was very, very profound. And there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about because reading this book on, on the face became a very personal kind of thing for me and right. touched in this very, very deep experience I experienced, for example, and I was interested particularly in, in the physiognomy chapters, mm -hmm. that, I, I mean, I couldn't smile hmm. for six months. And even now my smile's crooked. And it's like this tug of war between two sides of the face uh -huh. when you try to smile and one droops and the other is, is lifting up. And losing smile, just to the point you were just making, was a, a very profound loss for me in terms of how I engaged with the world. Right. And here's what it took away. It took away, I think, my sense of openness, my sense of kindness. You have noticed my that's a real problem for you. You're really unkind and, and so not nice. But, the, but, the, but, the, but there was a contradiction in the face, right? Yeah. Right. And I, I, and I, and I would argue that have, having come out of a theater background, you were even more aware of it. Because of the of of knowledge of the subtlety of those things, I, it's an extraordinary thing to think that that you take it for granted. It's like air. It's like if you know someone who has asthma, this you should not take breathing for granted. You should not take smiling for granted, right? It is who you are. It is mm -hmm. how you engage in the world. Mm -hmm. It's why people who and there have been many people who've written about these passport photos that you know say, "Why can't I be who I am? I, I need to go travel in the world and be who I am." But, but it, it breeds a kind of humility about your understanding about expression. What intellectually I think about is maybe it would, it would be like Lecoq's clown school, that I would mm -hmm. find that expression in other things. And did you? I don't think I did. I, don't think, I think I was so preoccupied with the wound of it all and with the fact that my, my face um, felt so distorted to me and my look on the world felt so distorted that this, um, was it Sartre that you quote who talks about the fact that you learn about your own face by traveling the faces of others, And right? you never see yourself as others see you because of the flip, which is why the, the, the iPhone, if you take a selfie, it flips it. And you're like, I don't look like that. That's right, not right. what I see in the mirror every right, day. Right. Oh, yeah. um, your point about compensatory behavior when something is taken away as, as essential as a facial expression, is worthy of one moment, if I can, if I can just share Please. this with you. A friend of Please. mine uh, who's Mexican was doing a study in Mexico about the Mexican, the police, I believe, in Mexico City. And they found that deaf people, of which there's a large population in Mexico City, as in many cities, uh, have visual acuity that is so astounding that they were able to take uh, a certain percentage of this population and give them a job at the police precinct in Mexico City 
and have them watch surveillance cameras. And like the uptick in the amount of crime that they caught that the cameras weren't even catching because their visual attention was mm. so extreme mm. because they can't hear, which is like the Michael Romer thing of taking the sound away, which is like if it's something's taken away from you, you realize, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like amputee uh, people who have a, who have a phantom arm and you really, what we have isn't that much. And that's why, I mean, as I argue in this book, machine learning is to me a, a quite pernicious um, thing if we're not aware of what it is we're giving up mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's all we've got, really. I mean, that is the most sustainable thing. It's not the least sustainable thing. It's the most. Uh, and what you experience by having some of it momentarily taken away from you is, is of course, very profound, as it would have to be. Yeah, and and as you're talking, I'm thinking the response is maybe that's a living question for me, that I need to find out what else can be possible. But I think the more important point for this was to say what you're exploring here had a very particular meaning for me, given my experience with this weird disease. I'm so glad, and I hope other people do. And it's not a design book. I like writing things that are personal. Um, I mean, this book was personal. The, the, the last book uh, was personal. Uh, and it seems in a, in a world of, I mean, what is design is a, is a not personal field. So what am I doing? I am a recovering designer. I mean, I, I'm interested in the visual world. But you're, asking, ask, you're also asking it to be personal. I think, I think it has to be personal. I think that's your point about vigilance. Yeah. I think that's your point about asking complex questions. I think it has to be opened up to where we're vulnerable. And I think, you know, the I, I write in the chapter R on relatability, and I quote this great Rebecca Mead New Yorker piece where she she talks about um, um, the fact that why do, why do things have to be relatable? Why can't you just take a picture of the Eiffel Tower? You have to be with it. Like I was here. You have to insinuate yourself into every narrative. What is that? Where does that come from? It seems disingenuous. And boastful and kind of artificial and not sustainable. But on the other hand, if you make it personal, if your journey is your journey for a reason, you tell a story, you tell an anecdote, yours about Bell's palsy, mine about my husband's death. I mean, it's not that you wanted to make it all about you, but I think you reintroduce, maybe maybe there's some, maybe that's the defamiliarization, right? That you are actually making it, your face is only your face, your experience is only your experience. If we're able to bring these parts of our stories to work, Maybe there's a way into getting our students and and getting our professions to think about the fact that being sentient isn't such a bad thing. It's not sentimental. It's not nostalgic. It's just real and it's human. And that's what writing about design as a humanist discipline was. That's what looking at a panoply of faces was. And I think that's the work that I'm I'm doing now. I have to say it it it, it comes through. It, you know, another acting teacher of mine said, um, I, I remember this so vividly that if you're not somehow telling some kind of secret about yourself when you're acting, no one's going to really care about your performance. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that there is some way in which you're letting somebody know something very deeply personal. So, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. I know that your Shakespeare was your thing, right? And I know this because. Your book came up in my research because at some point you wrote about a facial expression and it came up and I, I wondered. It was Cordelia in yes, it was. Says King Lear. It yeah, was. Yeah. It was. And I thought um, I thought that was such an interesting thing that, that what you're talking about is a very emotional human thing. And yet you're talking about defamiliarizing. I find that examples that predate 1900, I lose my students. But did you feel that by looking at the film adaptations, you were able to make a contemporary argument you wouldn't there, have been there, able to make? Yeah, there was, well, there, there was a chapter in the book that talks about the close-up as the space of secrets. So it, 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 it was appropriate for me to bring it Absolutely. up right now. Okay, Absolutely. because when you said that, that, that's what I remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't get away from it, right? Right. And that's, I'm making these paintings that are a little too big to be comfortable for the same reason. And I think that if we traffic always with that thing in our hands that lets us find an answer, Google, whatever, and take a picture, we're not going to be able to defamiliarize or tell a secret or break through to the other side. What is the other side? I don't know. So I, I suspect the power of the, this design book on the invention of desire is the sense of loss you were carrying while you were writing it. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the secret you were sharing or trying to work through anyway through the writing? It was not a place I expected to land in my early 50s. 
Um, I had two kids who were at the door slamming, eye rolling phase of their adolescence. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it was really, I, I thought, all right, someone invited me to teach in Paris. I'm going to Paris. I had lived there as a child. It was it was a sort of a strange four months. Um, but it did let me, I think, even coming out here, when you travel, it gives you distance from your life in a different way. And it let me examine what I was thinking about and the purpose of my work, the purpose, like, you know, the idea of examining what your contributions are and their consequences, what what life holds for you and how you might shape it according to your own desires and what you can't bend, the will that you can't bend. And I think it did lead me to ask certain questions. I mean, you know, it was a very, um, the world is a very visual place, a very unforgiving place. I mean, looking at the facial expressions of my husband as he no longer could, hmm. you know, he, he had a brain tumor. So obviously this was a person who had, he went from being a captain of industry to being really a shadow and to watch the children watching that and to have this wonderful doctor, which I write about in the book, say, I'll tell them, you don't have to tell them. Finally, when we'd lost all hope. Right. It was a 17 month journey that no one should have to be on. Uh, and it changed me profoundly. Um, and I, and I, you know. But you're, you're courageous enough to share it and, um, you know, I just to offer you the response that you are a first-rate mind. There's no doubt about that. There's a, <laughs> there's a big heart and a lot of struggle in there. And there is that comes through. And the call for the questions that you ask and the call for the a way of looking is, is all, to me, tied to that deeper peace. And it makes it much more meaningful, to be honest. Well, thank you. And I, I think it's it's ironic that musical theater has a piece in this, but I do think that I sometimes think the books I write, the work I make has a kind of theatrical component, not performative. But for me, what I loved about theater was a kind of emotional visual truth. I think if it's coming full circle, that, that there's a very small thread in there that has some, I mean, when you make a poster, you make a theatrical thing, right? And it, Picture's big, the type is big. You want people to open the book or look at the poster or go to the performance. But I think more than that, if I can remember back to what I loved about acting was having this emotional moment where you could inhabit another life. And maybe that's why all my books are different because I want to inhabit all these other lives. Mm. It was such a delight. Thank oh, you for, for me doing too. this. No, yeah. fantastic. I really, I'm so happy to learn of you and your work and what you're doing here. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Oland.